you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to a um, most unusual passage, perhaps, in your thinking as we prepare for Christmas. We're actually going to do a three-week study on the book of Ruth. But you'll find out we end up at Christmas by the end. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Ruth chapter 1. When I say homecoming to you, what comes to mind? For most of us, I think of my kids coming home from college. Or my daughter coming back, my married daughter coming back with her husband. It's a very, very positive experience. But that's not true for everybody, is it? I have some friends whose child is coming back in disgrace. And the only reason he's coming home is because there's no other place to go. That's not a happy homecoming, is it? It feels a bit more like what you find when you read the story of the prodigal son in the scriptures. And I would argue that the homecoming we're going to see in Ruth chapter 1 is not on the surface a terribly happy homecoming. God is going to work. But nonetheless, it's one marked by desperation and grief. Notice what the text says as it opens up. Ruth chapter 1, the setting in verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. For just a moment, do me a favor. Go back to the last verse of Judges chapter 21. All you have to do is go, go up one verse, really. Because what the last verse of Judges does, it encapsulates what the time of the Judges was like. And it says this, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. And we're going to be coming to a book, the book of Ruth. And on the surface, when you read what happens at the beginning in the first chapter, you're going to say, deja vu. Like, here we go again. People just do what they want to do. They think it's best in their own eyes. There's no king. By the time you get to the end of the book, a king is coming. Now, Ruth ultimately stands as kind of a, if you think of it like a black backdrop for the book of Judges, Ruth stands like a diamond along that black background doesn't start that way, but that's the way it's going to end. And what I want you to do, as we work through this story, I've often said this, it's kind of like that Kellogg's commercial, paste again for the first time. You know, as we kind of work through, what are they feeling? What's going through in their mind? What choices could they make? What choices do they make? Watch for some of those things as we work through the text. And to help you there, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to read through, and when I come to the names of the individuals, I'm going to actually give you the translation into English of what their names actually mean, so you, perhaps it'll bring out some added flair here in the first two verses. So let's read the text, verses 1 and 2. Um, for instance, Bethlehem means house of bread. Okay? Elimelech, his name means my God is king. Naomi's name means sweet. Maybe in those tender moments her husband called her sweetie. Who knows? 
Malon means sickly and Chilion means frail. So let's read it, read it, see what we find. In those days, days of the judges, there was a famine in the land. So a man from the house of bread in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. It was just a sojourn from their perspective. It wasn't anything that was going to last long. The man's name was, my God is king. And his wife's name was Sweet. And the name of his two sons were Sickly and Frail. Now you say, like, who in the world would name their kids Sickly and Frail? Well, here they are, okay? They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. They went to Moab and they lived there. Do you hear the irony? Look, if you're a Jew, and yeah, it's in the time of judges, and yes, it's a time where famine comes, and sometimes that's because of the oppressors, sometimes that's because of the judgment of God. All true, all true. But your name is, my God is king. And even in those difficult times, what do you do? You choose to take your family and go where you should never go. So, my God is king is leaving the house of bread to go with Moab. Moab? You know, one of the judges had to give them victory over Moab because of Eglon the king and that whole sordid story. But in their desperation, they go. He takes his sweet wife and sickly and frail and off to Moab. This is an interesting story, isn't it? You know, I want you to notice something else there. Notice the end of verse 1. They went to live for a while. That's how the NIV translates it. It's a very good translation. Because the, indica- the, the idea in the Hebrew is they're just going there for a short period of time. But when you get to the end of verse 2, they went to Moab and what? They lived there. Some translations said they dwelled there. And that's exactly true. Their intention was, we'll go away from the house of God, even though I say my God is king, and I'm going to go to Moab. I'll stay there for a short period of time, and we'll be back. And it didn't happen. People often make decisions they know they shouldn't make, and they go to lands much longer than they ever thought they'd be there. That's what happens. Verse 3. Look at this inciting incident, if you will. Now, my God is king. Sweetie's husband died. And she was left alone with her two sons. What would that be like? And you know, here's one of the things the text is not real clear on. I don't know if I have an answer for you. I don't have an answer for you. I'll tell you. What was Naomi's response to the move? We're going to find out later from chapter 3 that there's good indication that Elimelech, before he left, sold his land. So it was sold to somebody else. So was she saying, was she behind the move? Was she supportive of the move or was she begrudging the move? And the answer is, I have no idea. All I know is he made the decision, she and the kids went along, and they get into this foreign land, and they're just settling in, and her husband dies. And all she has is her two boys. Now, what do you do? 
Well, what could she do? She could choose at that point to come home, right? But for reasons that we don't know, she chooses to stay in Moab. What happens next? Verse 4 says, The boys married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Wow. What would that be like? You went to that land thinking there might be hope because of the famine. Perhaps begrudgingly, we don't know. You get there, and the husband dies. The boys meet two nice Moabite girls. They get married, and those families are barren for 10 years. No children. And at the end of 10 years, your boys die. Now, this is important to every age, but especially in the ancient world. Not to have any heritage, or, or not to have any descendants, I should say, was a terrible thing. And here she is alone in a foreign country. She's been there 10 years, and all she has left is two daughter-in-laws. So what do you do? Notice what the text says. Verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughter-in-laws, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now, she's in Moab. Word comes that there's bread at home. She gets her two daughter-in-laws together and whatever other belongings she has, which probably isn't much, and she says, let's go home. Now, what's interesting to me is this. As they're traveling, she apparently begins to start thinking. You know? So they're traveling back, and she's got only her two daughter-in-laws, and she's saying, but wait a second. Why am I taking them with me? And then what, what, what the writer does, and, and watch this when you read your scriptures, because it's so fascinating to me. Think, think of yourself almost as a cameraman. And often what you do in Scripture, you have kind of a panoramic view where you're moving through Scripture like this. Then all, all of a sudden, at, from time to time, the, camera, the divine camera writer will, camera man will zero in and zoom in on a particular setting, and he'll just expand it. So in, in two or three verses, he can say they were there for ten years and they're ready to leave, right? Just real quick. And they're on their way back, and all of a sudden you have this lengthy discussion between Ruth and her daughter-in-laws. That takes up several verses. Which means, when you have a zoom in and a story, you better really watch what they say. And there's three rounds in this discussion. In other words, three times Naomi is going to say, Girls, I wasn't thinking. Stay in Moab. Three times. Listen to what happens. And the first round comes here in verses 6 and 7. 
I'm sorry, uh, verse 8, verse 8, verses 8 through 10. Notice what happens here. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-laws, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud. And they said to her, we will go back with you to your people. So in this first round, she says, girls, there's no husbands for you there in Israel as far as I can tell. It would be much easier, stay home, and you know what? Stay home, and I pray that God will bless you. And both girls say, no way, no way, man, we're going with you to your people. Round two. Verse 11. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they're grown up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. She says, girls, girls, there's no hope. Look, you're trying to be committed to me. I don't have any more boys. I don't have a husband. Look, I'm 50 years old. We don't know what, Ruth's probably 25 or so about now. Maybe, maybe 30, something like that. Girls, if I happen to find a husband, can you wait 20 years? And then think you're going to have a kid at that point? Yeah, I mean, none of it made any sense. So she said, look, just go back. Well, Orpah's listening to this. And this second round kind of convinced her. So notice what she says. At this they wept aloud again. So they both cried because they loved her. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. And Naomi said, man, I'm going to have to give this thing one more shot. Oh, it's interesting what she said in her previous one, didn't she? She said, you know what? My life is marked by one thing. Judgment from God. You want to just put one word over my life? It's the word bitter. God is against me, girls. You don't want to hang with me anyway. Plus, I can't give you any husbands. And she said the second time. Notice what she says the third time. Verse 15, just to Ruth. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. I have to tell you, Naomi is no model of Christian virtue here. Is she? Go back and serve the Moabite gods. Because it would be better for you back there. Doesn't strike me as being terribly Christian. <laughs> Does it? Because she's desperate. She's not thinking clearly. It's all true. It's all true. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. When you die, I will die and where you die, I'm sorry, I will die, and there I will be buried. 
May the Lord, may Jehovah deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. We often use this for, for um, marriage, wedding ceremonies, don't we? But you know, in actuality, this is a lot severer even than what you would find in a wedding ceremony. Because in a wedding ceremony, if one of them dies, they can remarry. You know what she's saying here? I'm making a commitment to you. And I will stay with you. And even the place where you're buried, you can die long before me. And I will make such a commitment that I will be there till the end. It's an incredible commitment. It almost goes beyond anything you would find in a wedding ceremony. It's different. And, and some have come to this text and said, look, Ruth. Ruth is a wonderful example of one who trusts in Jehovah. Maybe. I'm not so sure that I'd even quite call her a proselyte at this point, to be honest with you. I think what the text is showing us more than anything else is she's committed to Naomi. In that world, if you were in Moab, and that's the way you believed, when you left Moab and you went to Israel, you kind of gave up that God, and everything was about regional gods. You moved from this God to that God. I think that if they were moving to Ammon, she might say something very similar to this. Now, she's going to come to realize who God is. No question about that. Incredible ways. But I think at the end of the day, her commitment is ultimately here to Naomi. Your God will be my God because it's your God first. So now it'll be my God. I'm committed to everything about you is what Ruth says. It's an incredible statement. Listen to Naomi's response. Verse 18. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. She gave up. Yeah, she gave it her best shot. I mean, three rounds at this girl. Go back. Men, that didn't work. You know, I'm under the judgment of God. That didn't work. And she just makes one statement after another, and Ruth says, no, you know what? No, no, no. I am with you thick and thin till the end. Wow. And Naomi says, okay, okay. And I imagine Naomi's still thinking a bit here at this point, boy, I have to care for her too. So notice what happens then. They finally come home in verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem, about 50-mile trip. When they arrived in the house of bread in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. Look, they hadn't seen her for 10 years. And now Naomi is back. And notice what they say. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Oh, she left when she was around 40. She came back when she was around 50. And my guess is she looked like she was about 60 or 70. Or whatever. And that's not an attack if you're 60 or 70. God bless you. You know. you know what I'm saying? The people are saying, these are hard years. Can you believe it? Is that Naomi? And the whole town's a buzz. And notice what Naomi says. Don't call me sweet, she told them. Call me Mara which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, 
but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me sweet? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was just beginning. I want to leave you with um, three thoughts from this text. And I don't know where you are in your life, but I know that one of these will probably touch everybody at one level or another. Here's the first lesson I learned. Difficult times are never an excuse for disobedient acts. I know Elimelech. My God is king. Felt desperate. I don't question that. I've never lived through a famine. That's true too. But there was a whole bunch of people that never left Bethlehem. Wasn't there? And all I can tell you, brothers and sisters, or if you're here, whoever you are, maybe you're not even a believer. All I can tell you is this. There is never a good excuse for disobedience. You know what scares me to death? That when I make a decision, I don't just make a decision that affects Doug Finkbeiner. It affects my whole family. That scares me to death. And you know what? It's a good fear. It's one we should carry with us to the grave. Elimelech placed his family in a precarious position for some pretty good financial reasons, but totally unbiblical. Disobedient, disobedience or difficult times are never an excuse for disobedient acts. Secondly, hope for the future can only come from returning to a place where God can bless you. Look, I suppose Naomi's motives were kind of all mixed. She's a bit of a complicated woman, to be honest with you. But she did one thing right in this passage. I frankly don't like the fact that she sent Orpah back to her gods. I think that was a lousy call. It is what it is. But you know what she did that was right? She went back home to Bethlehem. She'd been away for 10 years, and she finally made the right decision. And folks, we're going to find, as this book begins to unravel, a gracious, good, providential God will do things that you can't possibly imagine. But he chooses to do them in a place of obedience, doesn't he? People so, you know, I used to find this with, with working with, college-age students years ago, they used to kind of sow their wild oats and they would pray for a crop failure. <laughs> you know, I kind of think we all do that a little bit, you know? Because what you sow, you're going to reap. But with this decision, she was beginning to sow the right kind of crop, wasn't she? And in time, in God's good grace, she will begin to reap things that are very, very beneficial. And so, you may say, Doug, you don't know where I've been or what I've done or how far I've strayed. You may be absolutely correct on that. But I know there is always hope 
bound up in coming home. God is far more gracious than you can ever possibly imagine. The cross always tells us that. And thirdly, in our desperate return, things are seldom as negative as they seem. I can't tell you how many times I've talked with folks who have made bad calls repeatedly. And they're now beginning in God's good grace to make the right kind of calls in their life. And they still say, but I am just under the wrath of God. Everything is wrong. Nothing's good. It's exactly Naomi. And Naomi was exactly wrong. Do you notice what the writer says at the very end, the last verse? It was barley harvest which would lead right into wheat harvest. And this apparently is one of those times when the marauders were not going to come in and take your harvest. Naomi, you are on the brink. Naomi goes back to Israel for one reason. She needs food. It's all about survival. I mean, she's thinking as they're going back, there's no hope for me ever to have grandchildren There's no hope for her. There's just nothing. That's why she tries to send these girls back. And what she doesn't realize is because she's moving back to where she needs to be, God is not only going to give her what she wants, He's going to give her what she doesn't even expect in time. Isn't that true? You see? No. Was was her situation bleak and hard? Yes, yes. Was her situation hopeless? Absolutely not. God is against her. God is the one that's giving the harvest. And look at the ace in the hole. It's Ruth. I mean, for her in many ways, she loves Ruth, but Ruth might be a bit of a drag. Who knows? She's a, what's it like bringing a Moabitess into a Jewish setting in a town like Bethlehem, for goodness sakes? But by the time you get to the end of this book, chapter 4, the same women that looked at her and said, is this Naomi? Are going to say, Ruth is better to you than seven sons. Seven! You see. So I don't know where you are in your life. If you're looking to go to Moab, don't go there. You'll stay there a lot longer than you ever anticipate. If you're thinking about coming home, come home. Come home because there's always a gracious God waiting. And when you get there, things are never quite as bleak as you think. Because there is a gracious God who is going to be working behind the scenes in ways that you cannot possibly imagine. John Piper has a little uh, poem he's written off of this, I suppose. I'd like to read it to you. I think it's good. It's short. It's short. He says this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And I want you to know, as we work through this series, 
that God is here. And God's desire as it is at Christmas time. What is Christmas? Christmas is God's goodness to the world. God with us. Emmanuel, goodness sakes. God with us. What could be better? That's the grace of God. God is not a hard ogre. He is a righteous, almighty God, and he will discipline. That's absolutely true. And on that one, Naomi had good theology. But that's all she had. He is an incredibly transcendent, holy, righteous God. Always, always, always. But he is good. And when you and I are in a position where we come home, we begin to experience his grace in ways that we can never imagine. And we will find that as we complete the book. So I don't know where you are. I just know where I want you to be. And that's always close to God. Father.